0: Game happening this afternoon, you know, that everyone in New England's getting all sorts of cranked up about. But I want to let you know this game provides for me a collision of cultures. And so I'm going to watch it, but uh, let me tell you why. My sister is a New Englander in exile, and she and her clan live just outside Atlanta. So of course, the nature of the diatribes between the New Englanders who remained faithful and those who became, pardon me, damn Yankees. see, damn Yankees are the southerners, what they call folk who are in New England, who don't have the sense to go home, you see, okay. So we're talking about this. So as I watch the game tonight, I'm not only thinking about my grandson, Parker, who has memorized all the plays of the Patriots this past year. He knows the stats. He's eight years old. They can remember anything. But I've got a collision of cultures working around in my head. I say that because it provides an interesting introduction to our text today. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles that's on the thing, it's uh, page 655 or 6. And it's a story of Jonah. And I want to tell you that one of the things that's amazing to me about this is that um, we we looked at the first part, the first thing of what happened last week where we said, among other things, that God is one of these people who doesn't give up on people. And he commissions this obscure prophet, Jonah, middle of the seventh century BC to go to the emerging capital of the great world power Assyria. And Jonah doesn't respond real well. Instead of going east toward Nineveh, he goes 2,200 miles west to Joppa. And he gets himself into a little hot water, and where I'm from, We live in Groton and we pride ourselves in being the submarine capital of the world. Jonah takes the first submarine journey (laughs) that the world has ever known. Now, what's fascinating, we looked at this last week, is that Jonah's rebellion doesn't catch God by surprise. In fact, God is the one who not only sees what's going on, not only with Jonah, but with Nineveh. He not only speaks to it, but he sends along the way corrective measures to get his guy ready to do his work. And eventually, he ends up saving Jonah from himself. So this reluctant prophet uh, probably sees that God's going to call him again, and he decides probably that it's a wise thing to obey God this time. Who knows what might happen to him if he doesn't? And it's here that what the writer, what Jonah does in his memoirs is he sets the reader up for something. This is oral tradition at its best. And I found that there's one person in our audience who knows a little bit about literature, yay, lit majors, English at UConn. Rest of you are pagans and heathens. That's the way it is. you see. You're worried about the lesser things of life. But here, what's true is that Jonah sets himself up to tell his story. And you would think, among other things, that Jonah would, uh, uh, this would kind of work out. So let me tell you a little bit about the sequence of how this works out for Jonah, okay? Uh, He, among other things, the book is divided essentially in half. In the first half, Jonah rebels, and then he repents. And in chapter two, he pens this song of rejoicing. You got the sequence. And then uh, amazing, amazing, amazing things. God says Jonah, and Jonah decides to go again. And he goes to Nineveh, and the least likely person you would think to have an effect, Nineveh repents from king to commoner, from everyone, 120,000 people. They fall down in their face, and they say, God, you're the God. And you would expect, according to oral tradition, that Jonah would be the person who would lead the Ninevites in praise for God's saving grace. You understand what's happening technically. The microethics of Jonah's personal salvation mirrors the macroethics of Nineveh's salvation. I want to push it just a step further because I recognize some of you are not lit majors and you don't immediately understand what I'm talking about here. I mean, that's what's going on. That the first half of Jonah is supposed to set you up for an expected response in the second half. As Jonah repented and God rescued and restored and he pens this song of praise, so Nineveh repents God takes away the threat of his wrath and you would expect the people of Nineveh to break out into songs of praise. That's the sequence of the book. Y'all with me so far? Chapter four. Note what in fact does happen. I'm reading along. You can follow me either on the screen or in your text. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said while I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, do you have any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made for himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his heads and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. You gotta like this guy. I mean he only says out loud what we all think, correct? But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine though you did not tend it or make it or grow, make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now you have the outline in front of you, and I'm going to make it pretty easy for me to remember and for you as well. I'm going to suggest that Jonah, like Jonah, we have a problem. He's got a prophetic problem. We've got personal problems. And the problem has three aspects. First of all, we have a problem with success. When God doesn't do what we expect, we have a problem reluctantly embracing the success God brings into our life. Secondly, we have a problem with suffering. When God doesn't seem to care And the result is that we kind of almost react against God with a kind of rebellious attitude. And third, we have a problem with seeing. When God wants to show us something beyond ourselves, how will we reflect it to the world around us? Now I'm going to pack this a bit just to understand what's going on. First of all, understand that God has, or Jonah has this problem with how to deal with success. Think about this with me, just a minute bit it, okay? Jonah is probably the most visibly successful prophet in the Old Testament. The most visibly successful prophet. No other prophet comes close to the success that Jonah experiences. 120,000 people repent. You could think of the stories of Isaiah. Jeremiah ends up in a mud hole, pit hole of mud. Others who end up getting killed, sawn in two. And Jonah, of all the people in the world, has this ability to have enormous success right before his very eyes. Secondly, he's probably the most powerful sign prophet because no other prophet has the highs and lows. No other prophet is rescued from a raging sea by a great fish and then spit out on the land three days later. No other prophet has this ability to capture the imagination of Jonah. The rest of them wrote huge books. But Jonah has these great signs of God's interest in him. Thirdly, uh, Jonah's probably the most significant prophet in Old Testament history. Commentators suggest that as a result of Nineveh's repentance, the world had relative peace for 100 years. And the Assyrians didn't come down and ultimately annex the northern half of Israel, the 10 tribes, quote unquote, of Israel, for another 100 years after Jonah did his job. Now, now think about this a minute. Last week, we used the illustration of uh, my good friend Steve Bell being a prophet called to something. Let's suppose, just for the sake of the argument, God called Steve to be a modern-day Jonah. He goes to the UN, and he preaches at the General Assembly, and for 100 years, there's world peace. We'd think a pretty hot shot about what Steve was able to do. wouldn't you think? Jonah, as a result of his reluctant obedience, ends up providing something that has an impact for a couple generations. And yet Jonah has a problem with success. Why? Because he thinks that the wrong people were saved. (laughs) You see, Jonah doesn't want his enemies to experience God's grace. And the reason for this problem is he has three faulty views. The first, he has a faulty view of himself. He says, to himself, he's saying, Lord, I don't want my enemies to know your compassion. I want them to die. Some of you have people like that in your life. Now, you won't admit it out loud because we're in church. But yet, in the dark nights of the soul, Lord, would you just do them in? You see, He fails to see who he is because God's called to be his spokesman and he wants to be God's judge (laughs) and tell God how to treat those people he doesn't respect. Now, Jonah's faulty view of himself leads to a faulty view of his history. As we're reading along chapter 4, you realize that literally what Jonah does, he has a flashback. He gives you in verse 2 his... Uh, rationale for not obeying God the first time. He says, God, I know what kind of God you are. You're a slow, gracious, compassionate God. You're slow to anger, abounding in love. And that's the reason I knew you were gonna do this to Nineveh. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. Now, it's a flashback, but it fails to recognize what's really true of the history. Because if Jonah had not gone to Nineveh, they would have not heard who God was and would not have repented. So Jonah, by virtue of not seeing himself the right way, reinterprets and misunderstands his view of his own history. And he tells himself a lie. Can I make the point here, friends? That when we don't see ourselves the way God wants to, we don't see our history the way God wants to. (laughs) When we fail to see God correctly, we fail to see ourselves correctly, and we fail to see our history correctly. I don't know where this all fits for you. I'm asking the spirit of God to start to ring some bells in your head. But the real temptation is to tell yourself the lie about who you are and what's happened in your life. Instead of asking God to show you who you are from his point of view. Third, well, let me just give an illustration of this, because it helps me a whole lot. Um, a couple examples of how this has worked out recently in my own life, in our life. Uh, we have a, a, a guy in our church. His name is Dr. Jalal Aram. He's from Syria. And one of the things that Jay has told us is that the plight of Syrian refugees has radically changed the status of Christians within Syria. Kurdish people who are under the oppression of ISIS are now reaching out to Syrian Christians to get aid because they have nothing. Of course, the Syrian Christians are struggling as well because the Assad regime is just a pretty nasty kind of thing. But the fascinating thing is that the suffering and the success that now is coming to Syrian Christians allows them to have opportunities to talk to their Arab and Islamic neighbors in ways they would have never had before. The very success that God gives is not the success that they ever imagined would happen because the circumstances were inconceivable. Can I give another illustration? This, I picked this because it comes really close to home. When I was a student, sophomore at, at Uni- University of Connecticut, one of the people who visited our area, actually an auditorium in Willimantic, was a, a guy named Dr. Richard Wurmbrandt. Some of you may or may not know, he, the organization he founded was called Voice of the Martyrs. And for 10 years, Wormbrandt was held in virtual solitary confinement in Romanian prisons for being a Christian. One of the most dastardly things that his torturers did for him was they tried to break his will to be a believer. All sorts of beatings. But he resisted. And in fact, in the name of Jesus, asked Jesus to forgive them. One of the vilest torturers of Wurmbrand saw this and became a believer in Jesus. And those over him Took this torturer, now a new believer, tortured him to within an inch of his life, and then threw him into the same cell as Wormbrandt, and wanted to know whether Wormbrandt would take out his anger against his former torturer, or see him now as a brother. Ooh, I want to think about this one. There are some folk who have done me in. What happens if they actually become believers in Jesus? and then I have to live with them. Would I be kind to those who did me in? (laughs) The very success Wormbrand had, had resulted in something happening that made life very difficult for him. Jonah has a problem with success. For example, There have been, over my years, a number of people who've come to know Jesus and become part of our church. But then after a couple years they decide, oh, your church isn't going. going to go to another church. Duh! What's wrong with you? Sometimes the very success we have is not the success we want. And like Jonah, We have a problem with success as God defines it and not as I want to define it. Second thing Jonah has a problem with is with suffering. Won't spend a lot of time on this. We talked a little bit about how this has worked out in my life and the life of our church in the last several years. But one of the things that's fascinating is, is that God doesn't deal with Jonah's complaint it directly, he stages a small morality play to get Jonah's attention. And in chapter four, the nature of this morality play, involves a vine to shelter his head as he's east of the city. A worm that ultimately does in the vine and then this blazing shirako wind that ultimately takes him to within an inch of his life. By means of the play, God seeks to teach Jonah two great lessons. The first is that he wants to provide for him by means of sheltering. The the Hebrew word for vine or for what God does is this Hebrew word, hus, H-U-S. It means to protect by sheltering. And when God resurrects this vine to put it over Jonah's head, he's basically saying, you know what I'm doing to you, Jonah, is I'm sheltering you from the sun above, and it's a kind of picture of what Jonah's supposed to do when he went to Nineveh. By talking to people about who God is, he's the God who wants to shelter his people from his own wrath. (laughs) These people have done bad things, but I want to be a God of grace. I want to shelter them from the punishment they deserve. It's the same image that Jesus uses when he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, how I would long to have covered you like a mother hen shelters its chicks, but you wouldn't. In other words, all of us deserve the wrath of God, but God at the same time wants to shelter, it, shelter us from it by providing a salvation person, Jesus. And Jonah would have recognized right away that this vines growing and it's sheltering thing is the provision of God that he wants to provide through Jonah to the people of Nineveh. The second thing that God provides is this worm. And he's saying to Jonah, look, because of your attitude, I'm the one who wants to reveal to you that there are other parts of the kingdom that I've created that obey. The storm obeys. The wind obeys. The fish obeys. Even the worm obeys. And it will do what I tell it to do. And that's what I want you to do, is be a person that obeys what I send you to do. And finally, God provides this wind The judgment that Jonah wished on Nineveh comes upon himself. And here comes the huge big point of all of this. God provides in order that we will know the following. I can't say it any better than C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. Here I'm speaking somewhat autobiographically, but I'm letting you know where I'm at on this, that when pain and suffering and grief come into our life, the easy and great temptation is to become selfish and self-focused. And God sometimes allows difficulty in our life just so that we'll get out of ourselves and cling to him. There's a selfishness to grief that can do away with the provision that God wants to grant us. Just in the last couple weeks, the folk in the fellowship that I'm part of have endured all sorts of suffering. A guy named Bob has endured a, a bout with bladder cancer. He's recovering at Hartford Hospital as we speak. There's another guy in our fellowship who's trying to do a small business kind of thing and he's hobbling around, needs hip replacement surgery. Pain is his constant companion. Can't tell you the actual names here because some of my brothers are up here and I don't want to give away stuff that they're not supposed to know, but someone in our fellowship got caught up in an internet sting operation. His very future is uncertain. Another woman is struggling with breast cancer. Pain upon pain upon pain upon pain. And the real question will be, what will we deal with? How will we deal with the pains that come in our lives? You see, God had a plan for Jonah, both in his success and in his suffering. The question was, what would he do? And can I ask you ever so gently, when life goes well or when life goes poorly, what is your response? Do you seek to cling to Jesus, regardless of which end of the spectrum you're on? Or do you become selfish by assuming it was all because of you, that success happened, or that when tough times happen, well, it's all God's problem, but I'm gonna crawl into a hole and I would rather die. Jonah has a problem with success, he has a problem with suffering. Now we come to this third thing, he has a problem with seeing. And I I need to set this up a little bit for you, Um, tell you a story. A Bunch of years ago, Joanne and I were in Cripple Creek, Colorado. She my wife, just so, just let the record state. She's not here. She was here last week. Um, There's not another woman that I'm, I'm hanging out with, okay. Uh, and we went to a, a little restaurant in Cripple Creek. Now, restaurants putting it gloriously, there uh, were basically, there was sand on the floor. It, it was on this street. Cripple Creek was one of the last silver mining towns in the 1800s in, in, in Colorado. And the waiters and waitresses came around and they served you food. It was kind of like an indoor barbecue. And after the meal was over, they took off their aprons and they put on a melodrama, stage theater. Do you know have, any of you been to these? And you know what happens with these. It had dastardly dick who everyone, when we got on stage, everyone goes like this. And you've got the, 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 the damsel in distress. Yay, rah, rah. And you got deadly do-right who ultimately saves life at the end. You know how these melodramas go, right? Even if you're not a lit major, you understand how this goes, okay? Now, the interesting thing about the melodrama is it doesn't work unless the audience participates. You're with me, right? So, in the same way, the Book of Jonah is meant to be part of oral tradition, and as the story is told out loud, you expect the rest of the audience to participate, like this. God sees Nineveh's wickedness, and everyone would say, yay, finally, God got a clue phone, okay? How this works, okay? Jonah fails and heads off to Tarshish, and everyone goes, boo, like that. Jonah ultimately is rescued by the great fish, and everyone goes, yay, like that, okay? This is how it's being told after the fact, okay? Jonah goes to Nineveh and everyone goes, yay, right, rah, and they all repent. And everyone goes, yay, rah, rah, right? You, you with me so far? This is oral tradition, okay? Being told out loud. And then Jonah leaves and goes east of the city, the place from which destruction, proverbially, is supposed to come. And the rest of the audience is probably saying this, wah, this not the way the story's supposed to end. In fact, when I read Jonah 4 and got to the end, sure, I have to be concerned with that great city. You're all saying, Duh, what kind of conclusion is that? In terms of Denoma, just to let you know, I little know a little French, you see. It seems like it's an anti climax. And we're left wondering at the end what in the world is Jonah trying to get us to do? Why does the story end with a rhetorical question for which no answer is given? And here it comes. Get yourself ready. You gotta listen. Here comes the big climax. This is the killer. In the words of one of the great comedians of the 20th century, wait for it. You know how this works? Okay, hang on. Jonah wants you to see the greatness of God, not him. So he concludes his story by making him look like the bad guy. So people will be amazed at the greatness of the grace of God. Instead of being the villain, Jonah puts himself in the place of being the absolute worst of the worst so that people will be left with the fact, God, if you like someone like Jonah, you can like any of us. So Jonah's problem with seeing is not so much what he sees, but getting other people to see it as well. Uh, Friends, I don't know where you are with Jesus this morning. Some of you may be searching. Some of you may be on the way a while. Some of you may be struggling, quite frankly, with him. Jonah would direct all your sights, all your vision, all your looking, not at him, but at the greatness of God. And so he reflects back to the people this dialogue he has with God, not to get you to sympathize for him, but to help him see how much God keeps pursuing, keeps persevering, keeps going after his people because our God is a great God. (laughs) Three lessons and then a concluding illustration and then we enter into a time of extended worship. The three lessons are this. God speaks through reluctant people to reflect his character. Friends, if you haven't got it, if God could use Jonah, he can use you. (laughs) If God could call someone again and again and again and enter into contact with someone like Jonah, no matter what struggles you got with him, he wants you to. (laughs) And not only that, does God not only want to speak to you, but he wants to speak through you. Second lesson, God speaks to rebellious people, both in pleasure and pain. The mix is amazing and mysterious, but God sometimes makes us the vehicle by which success happens, and sometimes he makes us suffer. And in both cases, the big, big, big lesson is that he wants to be our God. He wants to be close to us. I love the words of the song, without God, this life has no meaning. Thirdly, our story speaks redemptively of another story. In the New Testament, Jesus would say, a greater than Jonah is here. (laughs) And our story only reflects the greatness of Jesus so that when people see how God works in and through us, what we're supposed to do is point them to Jesus. Technically, The narrative of our lives is part of the meta-narrative of God's work in the world. Will you be part of that huge story? Uh, Final grandparent illustration. About a month ago, I'm taking my grandson, Caleb, who I mentioned last week. Caleb had bear, remember? We have to have bear, otherwise we die, okay? So I'm taking Caleb to Tollgate Preschool, And as you remember, Caleb is four years old and the most verbal kid boy that I've ever met. The guy never shuts up. Quiet. We're in the car, and he's talking to me, and he says, Bebo. Now, some of you remember, Bebo stands for Bald Bob. That's what my oldest son wanted to call. But out came Bebo. Okay, that's my name. I figured Bebo Norman's a great thing, so I like Bebo. So he says, Bebo, do you know that my sister Libby has a middle name? I said, no, what's her middle name? Because we're driving on the road to... Preschool. Her name is Grace. Her name is Elizabeth Grace McCoy. I says, that's really cool. You get on and on and on. I said, Caleb, what's your middle name? He says, I don't know. I says, your middle name's Michael. Your middle name comes from your grandfather, Caleb Michael McCoy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then he says, Bebo, what's your middle name? I said, Well, my name. His middle name's Charles. I have his for both grandfathers. I'm Robert Charles McCoy. There's silence, blessed silence, for a couple seconds in the back. And then Caleb says, Bebo. He says, what? He says, I think it's cool we have the same last name. Now, if you know four-year-olds, they don't have formal operations, according to Piaget's analysis. He just knows we have the same last name. He doesn't know why. And I thought about that. And I said to myself, what's my last name? What's your last name? What's the name that gives you your identity and purpose in the world? Do you know the name Christian, Christ follower? Is it your last name, or is it just something that's a tagline? And as a result of having that last name, does it define how you look at the successes, the suffering, and the great joy of helping people see to whom you are related? Jonah, like me, has a problem with success. Sometimes I don't like what God does. Jonah had problems with suffering. I don't like suffering either. I often want to blame God instead of use it to pursue him. And God's given me the privilege of helping other people see who Jesus is. Will I do it in such a way that draws people to him, not to me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for your work in our lives. We want to say thank you for ultimately coming near to us and encouraging us to see that you're the God who provides, protects, and shelters. Now we want to come near to you by virtue of the death of Jesus in our lives. We want to say thank you for ultimately coming to protect us from your very self. As we take this bread, this wine, take communion with you. Would you help us to affirm that our last name is in fact Jesus? For we'll pray in Jesus' name and all God's people will say, Amen.